Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Good morning and welcome to the latest edition of FIS's podcast, Castaway. Bit of an international feel to it this morning, as myself and Chris Hudson are here in London. Tom is obviously in Singapore. Kerry is joining us all the way from South Beach, and we have a special guest this morning from Athens, Dimitri Palemis from Paradox Fund. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Good morning. Okay, so the first thing we're going to start with this morning is a discussion about the financialization of the dry FFA and iron ore markets. Tom, could I bring you in with your opinion on this, please? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, a trend we have been seeing uh, over the last 12 to 18 months. I think we've been seeing more and more financial and institutional money participating in the iron ore market, uh, which has helped volume um, considerably, uh, albeit some of that volume uh, growth has been driven by uh, what can only be described as fairly abnormal market conditions in the last uh, last 12 to 18 months as well. But we've certainly seen much greater participation from the sort of fund sector uh, than, than the iron ore market has seen, um, seen up to that point. I think um, greater sort of depth and liquidity has helped bring uh, bring some, some players to the market that, that have been waiting for it to develop into what uh, they term to be a much more liquid marketplace. And, and I think uh, certain levels have been reached in the last 12 months uh, that, that have satisfied some criteria for, for people that have been sitting on the sidelines for um, a number of years. Um, so it, from, from our perspective, it's been a, a very exciting uh, period bringing these new participants in the, into the market. Uh, and, and we're hopeful that we see it continue. Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, from a BD perspective here, um, I, I do have some stats to back that up. Last year of all the new clients onboarded, uh, from my perspective, about 17% of them were hedge funds overall. Uh, whereas this year, according to the levels of inquiry we're dealing with, that's going to look more like 50% which I think is quite a, 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 a clear statement on on how many funds are interested now to enter this marketplace, um, especially on the freight side, which is becoming more attractive. And I'm sure Dimitris can offer us a little bit more insight as to why that looks so attractive for funds at this time. Dimitri, can I bring you in there with your thoughts on the matter? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, the freight market, um, you know, has a lot of very interesting characteristics uh, that, you know, make it attractive for for let's say a quant hedge fund, um, it's it's the lack of correlation is the big thing. Um, you know the the drawdowns are the I guess perceived lack of liquidity, the you know the sort of absence of traditional data. So I think what we're seeing in our space are either specialized um, quant or systematic hedge funds that are just looking at freight. Those are quite small, I think, in in size at the moment. Uh, hopefully it can grow bigger. And then we are also seeing, I think, um, you know, quant systematic strategies that, you know, instead of looking at the big sort of uh, listed future space or, you know, major equity space, uh, these are funds that are focused on, uh, you know, what are, what's known as sort of illiquid, um, illiquid strategies. Um, but they definitely want to put freight 
in the bucket um, because it you know will definitely not correlate with you know sort of obscure uh, bond markets or weather derivatives um, and other kind of illiquid strategies. So they can you know they can run their models um, and you know the freight model will just run um, you know sort of beat to its own drum. And I think that's that's what that's what's attracting these kind of players to space. Um, you know to get the kind of players who I think you're seeing in the iron ore market, um, you know, I, I think we need to develop something more close to a, uh, you know, an exchange traded product, which is, which is tough. Sure. Okay. Um, Dimitri, just one more question. I mean, to what extent would you say that the availability of data is either problematic or helpful in terms of getting some more of these funds, especially the quant funds involved in the freight side of the market? Well, I think the problem is that you don't, you don't have, you know, a screen or an exchange where the, where the contracts are transacted. And I think, you know, that's, you know, it's quite clear this market's been going for, you know, two decades or so. The participants in this market for, you know, there's, uh, for whatever reason, don't want to trade in a screen, whether it's because you have players from all over the world, whether you have, you know, it's because of the, you know, the curve is spread out. We're not just trading one contract and, uh, you know, spreads off that, um, the whole trade, the whole curve trade sort of um, individually of itself. You know, this market, I think, needs brokers. Um, so because it doesn't trade in exchange, I think that's, you know, the, 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 the systematic guys and girls need, um, need the data, need the tick by tick, need the bids, need the offers um, to, to come in and, uh, and start participating. I think the data that, that's available is, is, you know, compared to five years ago, much, much more. It's just not enough, though, to bring in sort of the, this, the typical CTAs that are out there trading, you know, the other commodities. Yeah. That makes okay. sense. Chris, can I bring you in here to see your opinion? Yeah, no, mine was more a question of, um, I work in the oil markets, which is obviously a very mature market and has no problem with liquidity on a lot of its contracts. What is it about the kind of iron ore and driver FA market that other markets say, for example, that the tanker market don't have that is it kind of contributed to this financialization and the increasing involvement of funds, et cetera? So, sorry, the question is about why the tanker, tanker market is kind of dragging behind uh, drive yeah. rate nor. I mean, that would be interesting. I think my opinion is is that it's you know it's the world scale problem. It's the it's the voyage voyage contract problem. Um, the the tanker FA market is suited to the physical participants who transact for their reasons in uh, in voyage. Um, and then, you know, and world scale is used to express that. I think that that's a big, um, a big problem in getting sort of non, uh, non pure, pure tanker participants and oil participants in the market. Um, you know, first you have to get over the hurdle of, you know, what's world scale? What does it mean? Um, well, why am I trading world scale now for, you know, the August contract and I'm trading dollars per ton for the Cal 21 contract. But beyond that, I think the, your, you're transacting a tanker contract to get a dollars per ton exposure, but you're taking on a lot of um, a lot of oil exposure that is um, it's actually not really oil exposure; it's actually fuel oil exposure, which is not the most liquid contract. So it's I think it's it's created that kind of barrier, which um, has precluded people from from joining what I think is is 
is a fantastic, um, fantastically interesting market. And it's also dumbed, dumbed the volatility down. Um, you know, we've seen absolutely unbelievable moves on world scale this year um, from you know, 30 world scale up to 200 or so. But imagine if we'd expressed that in dollars per day, what kind of headlines that would uh, have repeatedly brought up um, in, in the major uh, financial press. You, know, you would have seen you know, uh, triple digit percent moves up. Um, you'd have seen massive moves down, moves up again. I think that kind of um, those kind of headlines, you know, a, mo a market that's easier to, to recognize from for someone who's not um, directly in the space, I think would have attracted or would have would attract uh, players to the market if it wasn't a dollars per day as dry has been. Okay, it does seem to be a kind of a chicken egg situation where to bring all these extra liquidity to stop the, all the people who are usually the physical side in in the in the tanker market would always be one way, for example, in a certain trade to bring that extra liquidity in and to change things, you'd have to bring it away from a market which has been tailored to their to their needs. So a big call out if anyone is listening uh, on the tanker market, some uh, some big changes perhaps to bring in uh, it to uh, change it to the same kind of volumes that the drive for Fay are seeing. It's definitely a tough one. Um, I mean, you know, I think that's that's been an argument that's been out there for a while. Um, but, you know, who, who takes the first step? Um, it, it's 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 hard. Okay. Um, well, Carrie, you, that was that was your question. You got a, a great answer there, Tom. Is there anything from you that you want to bring in for to, to question Dimitri about? Dimitri, do you see um, much value uh, or potential for funds uh, looking at the sort of freight, whether it's wet or dry space, that would have traditionally been entering this space as a an asset purchase to use these tools as a as a new way of expressing. Uh, a view on the shipping market, or do you think they're they're complementary, or or can 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 a fund use the FFA products as a, as a as a replacement for an asset purchase? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even go to sort of funds. I think there's you have a pretty big community of um, of people who who invest in the shipping space. Um, you know, mostly through, as you said, physical assets. The problem with investing in physical assets is that it's you know it's a it's a very sort of lumpy transaction that isn't liquid and happens only you know if the ship's available we gotta go and inspect it, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas you know the FFA market gives you a very liquid avenue to um, you know to express that view, you know either before or after you've made a transaction on on a physical deal which was going to move your exposure. Um, in quite a large way, unless you have a fleet of you know, 50 or 60 ships, and there are not many people or companies who have that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, instead of focusing on, on funds per se, I think there's a huge community of uh, shipping participants who need to take a look at the, at the FFA market, you know, not as a hedging tool, because I think the hedging angle, it's, you know, that drum's been beaten so many times. I think there's, you know, very logical reasons why it's, it's not for most companies the best hedging tool. But it could be used as an alternative investment tool, as a tool to, you know, as a diversification tool. If, you know, there's a company that's only uh, exposed to supermaxes, you could easily, with a spread trade, mm -hmm. sell supers by Panamax. As a Panamax owner, you could get exposure to capes. Um, I think it, if if used correctly as a, an alternative investing tool, you know, by this big, big community, a global community of shipping investors, um, you know, only a small part of them have, have approached the market. I think that's, you know, that's where I would go to first. And of course, if, you know, there are funds out there who, you know, are looking at 
you know, buying ships, which is, you know, a tough proposition in some cases can end up being, you know, kind of a roach motel. Um, yeah, the FFA market should definitely be, uh, be sold to them. Great. Thank you. Um, all right. If nobody's got any more questions, we'll move that on. But that's a, I think that was a pretty useful discussion there. Um, we'll head on to our news review of the week. Uh, Chris, you've got a story from the FT about offshore wind. Yeah. So moving to uh, another emerging market, especially for the US sector, um, investment for wind is going to kind of be almost at parity with, with uh, oil investments. Uh, apparently towards the end of this year. Um, this is quite a huge change. If you look at 2010, when we had the Deepwater Horizon crisis, there was actually zero investment uh, on commercial offshore wind. And now you get to the stage where there's going to be around $78 billion invested uh, to the $82 billion in US offshore oil. So this is definitely a change. I mean, they're miles behind in terms of what the EU's done in terms of of uh, is investment in, in wind and the change towards more renewables. But the US has finally come across to it. And this is definitely something which is more of a kind of northeast US kind of phenomenon. Um, you're looking at Trump's problems uh, currently, what he's got, but he's had in 2018, they tried to push uh, new legislation for offshore oil and gas. Uh, but even Republican governors on that eastern seaboard were having no interest in, in things. So it does seem to be a shift and something which the Democrat Party is is definitely running on. I'm sure that Joe Biden, is, as the candidate for, for president, will be pushing ahead with what many Democrats have already adopted uh, with their renewable policy, a very green Green New Deal. Um, so this is actually starting to see an effect in, in the U.S. market and will obviously have an impact for what, a fledgling U.S. Uh, oil market, which had been coming up and coming and challenged OPEC in 2014 before its collapse and tried to come back again has now been uh, in serious difficulties we've talked about over a number of weeks. But the US uh, in investment in terms of its uh, gigawatt installed capacity by 2040 is going to be nearly at uh, 40 gigawatts, somewhat behind the EU, which is going to be over 120. China's looking over 100. But the U.S. is starting to come along, so it does seem to signal a start of the changing uh, energy markets, and that has impact for, for U.S. oil as well as for, for oil around the world and other commodity commodities, freight tankers, which will be be moving things around on that market. But so I thought it was something which looks to the future, and especially things that we've talked about with the COVID crisis and environmental climate change, something which caught my eye, which was slightly different, uh, and something to bear in mind with more long-dated view of, of what's going to happen. Okay, well, that's a story that might blow people away, so keep your eye on that. Um, we'll move on, and we will bring in Kerry with a story from Reuters about EU lawmakers, including shipping emissions. Well, that's right. EU lawmakers have agreed to include shipping emissions in the EU carbon market. Uh, and in fact, they have agreed to move up the schedule for doing that, uh, now saying that they want to include shipping companies in the EU emissions trading system perhaps from 2021, uh, to bring okay. the industry into line with the, uh, the, the bloc's general efforts to cut greenhouse gases, according to this Reuters story. And, you know, I think this is a story that has huge implications for the growth of the emissions trading market, you know, as well as just for the shipping industry itself. Um, uh, it's something where we could see uh, an injection of liquidity, of further liquidity into the ETS. Um, that uh, that I think could be quite interesting, uh, along with bringing in a whole host of new participants to that market. 
Okay. Am I right in saying it was 2025 previously that the EU had been planning to bring it in? That was my understanding as well. And according to this article, they're saying they plan to begin adding them in from 2021 um, with uh, the creation of an ocean fund from 2023 onwards uh, uh, to be financed by revenues from auctioning allowances under the ETS uh, to help make ships more energy efficient. Okay. I'll, I'll just bring in Chris here. He's got a point. Yeah, as well. I think that this is part of a wider view of uh, environmentalism and push for that across across the industry. I think it's 2030 that the uh, the IMO is committed to cut uh, CO2 emissions in half uh, from 2008 levels. So, you know, a lot of this implications to to how the operation of ships, fueling, uh, and the future of development of trying to go 100% carbon neutral, which would be one hell of a move for the shipping industry. Exactly. Exactly. Dimitri, I mean, in, in the in the short term. With that article that we're just talking about, how do you, how would you view that impacting rates over the over the short, medium, and, and, and longer term? Um, I think a little more detail would be needed. I mean, does that mean are those ships that will call in Europe? Are those ships trading globally that are managed in Europe, owned in Europe? I, I mean, you, I, I need. To, I read the article myself, um, and I, I came away with. Kind of more questions than answers, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I have to agree with you there. I think I think it was a little bit short on detail, and and in fact, it, it could well be the case the plan is announced as short on detail so far. So I think we probably need to all hear a little bit more about it. Um, although I suspect it'll be ships that are owned or managed from the European side, but uh, but let's see what they come out with when they flush out the detail. Yeah, but again, that's I mean that's going to create you know that's going to kill the European shipping industry, right? I mean, then, you know, everyone's going to move to Singapore or, uh, or somewhere else. I mean, that, that I don't think... That's a very good point. That, that's a very good point. I, I would assume have... you would start any ship that calls in Europe uh, either to load or, or to discharge um, would have to, you know, offset the carbon footprint of that voyage. I would assume. I'm that, But that's, you know, if you're going to make it every, you know, European managed company that just puts them at a huge disadvantage to to everywhere else in the world and and you know these are i guess it's you know it would be a burden in the shipping companies um so i could see it as you know as something that would be of an extra little bit of an extra cost to to transport stuff to europe um you know on the dry side we're already seeing you know the you know the european market has, has been dwindling and dwindling um so i don't think it would be a massive effect yeah. to the dry bulk market. I mean, I guess, you know, you'd, it would attract more efficient ships to Europe and where lesser efficient ships would, you know, wouldn't make that trip up. Um, but, you know, there's, because of the building program that's happened over the past few years, you know, there are enough efficient ships that, that could do that. Well, uh, well, exactly. I mean, if you look at the Cape fleet already, that average fleet age is uh, is, is so young. It's it's hard to imagine that, uh, that this would cause a new building wave of, of even more efficient ships. But yeah, I, I don't see it affecting dry that much. Um, I guess you know maybe a little. I guess the I guess the big effect would be containers um, because they also you know they go faster. They emit a lot of carbon, so I could see that uh, you know affecting potentially affect the container trade um you know maybe i don't know just sort of thinking out loud here is that you know you could see if carbon prices hit a certain level then that actually might encourage slow steaming of uh, of ships heading to europe which you know, would constrain the fleet and and be i guess good for container rates that's a good point 
That's a good point. Okay. Um, all right, that's interesting. Well, we'll move on to our last story today, and that's actually mine, which is out of trade winds, and it's about China's floating storage glut spooks big tanker markets. So a record volume of oil has been floated off China due to prolonged congestion, the article says. Um, figures show that the average waiting time for VLCCs in China reached 20 days at the start of last week, so a couple of weeks ago really now, compared with less than 17 days at the end of May. Uh, customs data cited by various media outlets showed that China imported nearly 48 million tonnes of crude in May, an all-time high. And according to Kepler, the amount of crude stored off China for seven days or more reached a record 80 million barrels on the 28th of June before easing to 73.5 million barrels at the beginning of this week. Um, the article then goes on to say that congestion in China has also caused the average speed of laden DLCTs to drop below 10 knots. And according to IHS, ship operators have been realising that congestion in China increases and have no reason to rush as delays at ports would not be avoided. So some interesting points there. A bit of a, a, bit of a brief one for me, but just interesting that this um, the whole congestion of capacity is becoming uh, an issue again. Um, Chris, your opinion on that? Yeah, I was reading a story a couple of weeks back talking about um, just off Shandong province, there was a queue of 41 VLs waiting to come in. And it would take to about August to clear through that kind of backlog of people trying to. And, and if you take into account the, the record levels of of not only storage but also imports that China have done since um, lockdowns ended, there. I mean, we're over 11 million barrels a day they were importing. I mean, it's no surprise that um, that story at all. Okay, so does this lead us to a further question that capacity is, is soon to become the next market to look at? I mean, in the office yesterday, we were discussing the auction that ICE were showing levels on in the Permian Basin for storage. Um, how soon till storage and capacity becomes a broken or even cleared market? It, it's something to take into account. And I think what was a more of an important point here is to talk about uh, you're, you've got an economy or world economy which has been struggling uh, with trying to get back on its feet after all the disruption that's happened. A stat which um, was reading yesterday talking about the, the large majority of oil demand growth has come from non-OECD countries. And since 2007, 50% of the growth has come from China. So you're going to have a stage where any sort of disruption, any sort of change of policy, so with the levels of, you know, huge levels of storage that they've had, queues and everything else, that is going to have a much bigger impact on, on necessarily on these on these markets, especially tanker market, than it would have done in 1995. So the oil is coming towards and people have been writing stories uh, to get to that. Where are we going to hit that? peak oil demand. A lot of the extra demand people are pointing to India to potentially be another big country which has the potential to have the same impact that China has done since 95 on the oil markets, but isn't anywhere near the same sort of um, level of development that China was in its um, takeoff into becoming the country that it is now. But it's a huge question for, we were talking on the news stories about wind, about environmental effects, about change of environmental features for the the shipping industry well this is going to be another thing which is going to take uh, a knock on for a knock on effect for, for the oil market where does this new demand come from because it's not necessarily going to be coming from from china as those levels start to come off or potential for we've bought all our cheap crude now we don't necessarily need as much as possible and with power production coming from different countries we talked several weeks ago about japanese power market coming on board you know these things are going to change the the flows of of oil and and the ways that we make up our, our energy production. So I think that that is the start and the point of a, somewhat of a changing 
changing market that we could see quite big differences and whether India comes and takes the place uh, is one to to be seen but I don't think it's in any sort of scenario at the moment to be taking on any sort of China like rocket up to the the top of levels that it's done to take number one spot. Okay gents anything you'd like to add to that before we move on to just a quick market review? No. Okay. All right. So let's move on to an overview of market movements this week before we wrap up. Um, And let's start with oil, Chris. Can you talk us through some of the supply and demand issues for there this week? Yeah. So we've moved up again slightly above $43 for for Brent. And even uh, WTI, we were talking about negative prices a couple of months ago, uh, has managed to claw itself back up above the $40 mark. Uh, What has been interesting this week is stories about the different types of crews and their pricing relative to each other. So by this, um, what's been in real demand recently is heavy crudes. So there's uh, the main two heavy crudes, and a lot of this will come from from, uh, OPEC countries, OPEC plus countries. So the cut agreement that's happened, they did their extension for a month. This has obviously cut the amount of heavier crude coming into the market and now is in real demand. So actually seeing, um, was it the uh, Ural crude, Russian crude, uh, at $2.40 barrel above dated Brent for April? Uh, and we saw for uh, Middle Eastern uh, Arab heavy crude was actually for the first time at parity with Arab light, which is usually you know, to a premium to that. So that's one of the features that we've seen uh, in terms of crude. And then on supply side for refineries in terms of products, we're seeing a lot of Asian refineries start to cut back production of the new 0.5% fuel. They're not seeing the demand currently there in the market. They're concentrating on domestic supply. Uh, so that could be an impact to what we're having already on, you know, pretty good premiums on the 0.5%, to be fair, compared to other products. We pointed at the, the terrible situation for vacuum gas oil in Europe, which has collapsed in price. Uh, but it does seem that they're going to be cutting production quite significantly. Uh, an example, uh, Hyundai Oil Bank, uh, we're producing under 200,000 metric tons per month. And their actual usual capacity is uh, just over 300,000. So you can see quite a significant cut around about 40% from some of these these refiners. So maybe less on the product side, and those heavy crews are really in demand at the moment. Brilliant. Okay. Kerry, can I bring you in to give us a summary on freight, please? Absolutely. I mean, on the dry freight, the market has been swinging wildly over the last couple of days, but overall, it's clear we've entered a corrective phase. Um, you've seen that Cape July and August, uh, those front-end contracts were both down about 3,500 yesterday. Uh, so far today, another drop of about a thousand on that front end. Um, it's worth noting that although the market is correcting back down on both the physical and the paper, uh, that index had still moved up so sharply during the last week that the five TC average on the capes is actually still close to 33,000, which is about 2000 above where we were this time last week. Um, you know, I think in terms of the supply and demand factors driving this look, Part of it, this was a natural correction after moving up over 1,500% in the last five weeks, right? The market has to take a breather. Um, I think that you've seen some of that squeeze on that C3 Brazil-China route eased a little bit because enough owners were enticed to start ballasting uh, with rates hitting sort of $22 on that C3 recently. Um, Those rates have moved down to 18.5 from 22 just in the last couple of days. Um, and, you know, last week and the week before I had mentioned that, you know, it was the end of the Aussie financial year, which generally sees those Aussie miners push out just as much as they absolutely can in terms of shipments. 
And so what, uh, what we've seen again is those miners trying to take some of the heat out of the market a little bit with that C5 coming down from about 11 bucks to $9.20, I believe, recently done over the last couple of days. Um, again, I think we could argue very strongly that this is just the market taking a breather. It's a natural correction. Um, however, one interesting thing to kind of bring in here is if you believe in counting Elliott waves, um, you know, this looks a lot like we've just entered a corrective wave four on both the Cape and the Panamax charts, um, suggesting there could still be room for bullish wave five later in the year. Although I will leave that, that discussion open for uh, for anyone else's opinion. Okay. Um, Dimitri, it's too good an opportunity to have you on with us. What are, what are your sort of thoughts on the, uh, on the freight market in the last week or two? Well, I mean, you know, the freight market is, is either really, really boring or, you know, one of the most exciting markets in the world. And I think, you know, we've just had, you know, a month of June where we started out, I don't know, three, four thousand and ended and ended close to 30. So, you know, it's it was it was an unbelievable run on the capes. Um, you know, I I think in general that it's going to be it's going to be an interesting market, you know, for the balance of the year, at least. Um, I think it's clear that, you know, Brazil's back, something that you know, Bra you know, Brazil was really out of the market for all sorts of reasons, uh, different, I think, different reasons. Um, but, you know, the, the combination of all those was just a horrible export program in the first half of the year, which depressed rates. I, I don't think capes, you know, and sentiment, obviously, from coronavirus, et cetera, didn't help. Um, Brazil's back. The ships weren't there. Um, and, uh, and that moved rates. And, you know, in addition to that, you have the, you know, you had bad weather in China. Um, and you have the crew change issue. And I think the crew change issue is going to, you know, it's going to take some ships out of the market. Um, yeah. you know, bad weather in China, I think, you know, could could see that flare up again. Um, and, uh, you know, the volatility in rates makes, you know, makes the whole decision to ballast over to Brazil, you know, makes that difficult as well. So, um, and, you know, you have miners who you know, said are trying to put a break on it. So it, it just, it's going to feed into the volatility. Um, but overall, I think you're, we're going to have a you know very very different market in the second half than we did in the first half, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty you know welcome change to the market we were talking about a couple months ago. Okay, understood. Wow. All right, Tom, can I bring you in to get something on iron ore, please? Yeah, I mean the last uh, seven days in iron ore, I think uh, have sort of been a continuation of the the craziness that we've been seeing this year. Um, in terms of uh, numbers, um, this time last week, the Augie contract was uh, around 95.50, and it's now trading at 102.85, and the Q4 88.60 uh, currently trading at 94 and a quarter. Most of that's happened in the last couple of days of um, some very sort of bullish uh, rhetoric being pushed through China on the equities front, uh, sort of driving uh, driving China to, to get behind China, essentially uh, pushing pushing equities higher and higher and higher. And that seems to have filtered through, I think, a little bit into the, to, into the commodities space. Um, we've seen 
a huge spike the last couple of days uh, on the iron ore price uh, when fundamentals to to most people look to be softening. Um, so, in in summary, it's been a, in a been a case of sentiment trumping fundamentals, I think, uh, and which seems to have been um, somewhat the case for the last last few months as well. Um, that said, Vale is still committing to to getting thirty one. Uh, million tons a month out of uh, out of Brazil for the rest of the year, um, which um, I think where the iron ore price is trading at the moment suggests that they're still not sure that that's really going to happen. Um, but there's certainly no real uh, supply side issues at the moment. Uh, iron ore seaborne shipments from the five major producers, so Vale, Rio, BHP, FMG, and Roy Hill, have been increasing week on week into the end of July, uh, end of June. Sorry, um, so um, not really sure uh, where it goes from here. To me, it seems seems overdone at the moment. It seems too strong basis uh, the fundamentals that we're seeing, um, but um, Iron Ore has had a mind of its own this year, so. Um, don't know where it goes. Dimitri, anything you'd like to add on, on the iron ore before we well, let you go? I think it was a pretty good recap. I think, you know, I, I think the supply fears um, were much more warranted uh, a month or so ago um, when we were seeing, you know, the, the start of the outbreak in Brazil and, you know, an unknown factor as to how, you know, local uh, and federal governments would, would deal with that with, um, you know, with the mines and the ports. Um, and with, despite the sort of one-week pause in Itabira, um, there really hasn't been any effect, uh, I think, on, on in the supply of ore from from COVID. Um, I, I think you know we had that headline that the president of Brazil got um, you know tested positive for COVID-19. Um, you know you saw I think that you know share price of value went down um you know maybe that's also you know added fuel to the fire a little bit um i don't think yeah that the brazilian government at this point in the outbreak is going to make you know a similar move i think i think maybe people are saying or thinking that you know look at boris johnson the second he got he tested positive uh you saw a you know a flip in uh in strategy in the uk and you know from a know very relaxed uh approach to a quite strict lockdown um you know even if there is a lockdown in brazil i mean i could see it happen in the big cities i don't know if you know just because the president got the got tested positive that valley is gonna shut down a big part of their operations um we're looking at the oil price right now you know that brazil's lost i think a big revenue source from one of its one of its major dollar um, exports, you know, they always have grain, which is doing very well, but they also, they need, they need to export ore. Um, I think that's quite clear. And I, I think they're going to continue to do that. Um, so yeah, the, I think the explanation between behind this price rise in ore has been, you know, obviously a big, a big push from the 1st of July from, from the Chinese authorities, uh, you know, to, to bring, you know, some of the animal spirits into the equity markets. And of course, um, that's flowed into that's flowed into the, the the ore markets now. How long that lasts, and how long the Chinese government, you know, is gonna is gonna countenance that? I mean, I, I'm sure they'd love speculation to go into some equity markets, but you know, again, at the end of the day, you'll, you'll, you're just enriching um, the Australians who you've had a you know a diplomatic spat with um, by by 
boosting the iron ore price. So let, let, let's see how that, go, that goes. I agree. The fundamentals, um, you know, I think are quite firmly, uh, you know, not as, not as positive for the price over the past month. Uh, you, know, you can just look at the, the freight market as, as evidence of that. But, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it is a sentiment-driven market. It is a, it is a speculative market. Uh, and, and right now, the, you know, the, the trend is up. So let, let's see how far that goes. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Well, gentlemen, if there's nothing else for any of you to add, we'll, we'll draw a conclusion to this today. Uh, thank you very much to our special guest, Dimitri. Uh, we really appreciate you making the time for us today, and we'll let Kerry go back to the beach. Um, join us next week. Uh, we've got a few more guests lined up over the next few weeks, so hopefully they should continue to be as interesting as today's. Thank you very much, guys. Thank, thank you very guys. much. Thank you.